Amen. Hey, you guys doing well? You guys doing all right? You guys awake? Are you guys awake? Why don't you turn to the person beside you and say, hey, I'm so glad that you're here. Turn to the person on the other side and say, hey, you weren't my first choice, but you smell really good. Like really good. Boys, I apologize if I just made you look creepy in front of your crush, but your crush probably should have been your first choice anyway, so... Um, like Pastor Michael said, uh, I'm a youth pastor at a church called Christian Life Assembly, or CLA. Uh, it's in a city called Langley. Uh, it's pretty far away from here. Um, that's a joke. You guys can laugh, um, okay, or not. Um, but I am really excited to be here. I know that you guys are in this series called Best of the Best, um, and it's beginning to look like it's just Chinch bringing in a lot of Asian speakers. And I want to say, we're allowed to say we look alike, but it's, it's a little racist when it comes from him. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like a double standard. I don't know. I'm not saying it's right. I'm just saying it feels. It just feels. It's fine. It's fine. We all look the same anyways. You guys, I looked this up the other day just for fun. Because it's confusing, right? Like, it's like a big joke. Like, we all look the same. It's true. Um, there's 4.4 billion Asians in the world. Like, literally 60% of the world's population is Asian. Asian invasion. Yellow, mellow. It's like normal to have small eyes. You guys are the weirdos. You guys ever think about that? You're like, oh, he's got such small eyes. Can he see? Yeah, we can. 60% of the world, baby. That's right. Be careful. Check yourself before you wreck yourself. Um, but I'm excited to be here. And uh, before I say anything else, though, um, I'd like to, uh, with you guys, join you guys. Can you guys uh, show some appreciation and honor to your youth pastor, uh, Pastor Michael Chinchilla? I, I'm being honest. I'm being honest. Uh, Chinch kind of talked about, uh, you know, we're friends, so I can call him Chinch. You're not allowed to call him that. You have to call him Pastor Michael. Um, Chinch and myself, like you said, we've developed this deep friendship, uh, and it's been fun. It's been a lot of fun, and it's been... Uh, and this is true. You guys need friends like this in each other's lives that are always pointing back to Jesus, uh, that are encouraging to be around and life-giving. But I also know you guys have one of the best youth pastors in the country. And I don't just say that because I like to say it. I do like to say it, but I do believe in it wholeheartedly. Uh, I have a lot of youth pastor friends. I think all of them are amazing. Uh, you guys heard from Pastor Jeremiah last week. Uh, but I want you to know you really are uh, not stuck, but you are blessed with one of the best in the country. Uh, so show him some honor and appreciation from time to time. Uh, yeah, you can give another one. And um, where, are my, uh, where are my youth leaders at? If you're a youth leader, can you stand up? If you're a youth leaders in this place, can you stand up? Stand up on your feet. Don't pretend to be shy. You guys are like, yes, this is my moment. Change, I don't know. Um, hey, I, let me just speak to you guys directly for a little bit. Uh, Michael, no, stand up, stand up. Stay standing. Because I'm speaking just to you. Uh, I'm sorry for the rest of you guys. Um, Pastor Michael talked about me um, getting the privilege to be able to lead our youth ministry um, at my church. And I want you to know, uh, he kind of talked about delegating and my friend Austin here. Everyone say hi to Austin. And me and him are shaking our heads because our team is so good. It's so good. I miss them more than they miss me on a Tuesday when I'm not there. Uh, but I want you to know, uh, not to uh, bench or to put on the side or marginalize Pastor Michael's influence, uh, but youth leaders, I want you to know uh, that my life was drastically changed radically by the love of my youth leaders. Uh, my youth pastor was amazing growing up, uh, but it was the youth leaders' influence in my life that changed the way I looked at Jesus and the way that I looked at the church, and I do believe it saved my life. And the hard thing about youth ministry is that youth are mean. 
Um, and it's hard. They tell you that your jeans are too tight. And you're like, I'm trying. Uh, you try to dance, but the dab's never good enough. Um, you don't know what you're trying to stay relevant, but you're like two years out of high school. Why is it so difficult? The chap snatting and the Twitter feeding. Um, I want you to know, keep going. Uh, sometimes you don't see the fruit of it. And I'm, I'm not even going to promise that you will in your lifetime. Uh, but you never know how much the seeds that you plant and how far they'll ever go. There are people in my life that aren't in my life anymore, youth leaders in the past, where just a year of their input, the year of them sowing and investing into my life changed me completely. Uh, so I want you to know, as much as Pastor Michael uh, deserves the honor for leading you guys, uh, you guys really are the MVPs. You're the real MVPs. So you guys can sit down, give it up for them one more time. Love you guys. Michael didn't ask me to say that. I really just wanted to because I think it changes people's lives. I think you guys are changing the world. Um, but guys, if you're here and you're not used to this whole church thing, uh, first of all, welcome. Uh, you belong here. And I can say that because I know that all these guys would say the same thing to you. Um, but I want you to know, usually what happens when they bring in a guest speaker such as myself, uh, the first five minutes is dedicated to uh, telling you uh, how incomparably and incredibly uh, hot my wife is and as a result of how good looking our kids are. And if he's seasoned or she's seasoned, I'll even show you a picture. Because when my kids are cute, you're like, oh, maybe I can trust them a bit more. Because like, if that thing can come out of that thing, then I don't know. Well, not, you know, wife, it's different. Biology, you'll learn it in grade 12, take it. Um, but I want you to know, I don't have kids and I'm not married, so we can say five minutes there. Um, but I want you to know this. If you are new to this thing, or this is something that you've just grown up in naturally, and this is something that's very comfortable for you, I want you to know this about these moments that we have together. As a preacher, this is all that I can do, is I'm going to open up the Bible, which I believe to be the Word of God, the truth. You know, what's crazy about the God that we serve, and I, and I want to, like, learn as a Jesus lover and follower to find the beauty in this every day, is that my God, the creator of the universe, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, actually wants to talk to me. That means on Easter, not only do we celebrate a God that's not dead, but a God that's not silent. And the cross is the biggest statement he could have ever made to the world. But he actually chooses. Everything that we know about God through this is because he wanted us to know it about him. This is what's incredible is that this is the living word of God. And sometimes in church, what happens is we try to answer questions no one's asking, and then we blame the Bible and say it's not, it's not relevant or it's outdated. It has nothing to do with my life, but I want you to know God desires to speak to you personally and purposefully tonight. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak from the Bible. I'm going to try to illustrate it in a way that's hopefully understandable for you and I. Because uh, if we're all being honest, I'm not going to do a whole show of hands because all of you guys should put your hands up. Uh, if we're being honest, this book is hard to understand at times. So hopefully... Uh, through the study that I've done and, and my illustration, hopefully I can illustrate in a way and, and maybe paint a picture that helps you understand what God is trying to speak to you and I. And then I'm just going to invite God to do what only he can do. Uh, this is the reality, is that in a room this size, I can make the assumption that there are so many stories and lives represented. That means I have no idea the some of the weight that you guys are carrying as you walk in. Some of your youth leaders, some of your friends have no idea the weight that you're carrying, the things that you're going through, what home looks like to you, if home is even a thing that you want, if school is something that you want to go to, if life is something that you think is not worth living. I don't know the weight that you carry, but I can only assume in a room this size there are so many stories, but I want you to know God not only sees you tonight, but he wants to speak to you tonight. And so I hope that as you kind of press in and lean in a little bit, uh, that God would speak to you as you are ready to receive from whatever it is that he wants to say. But uh, have you guys heard of something called the golden rule? Hands up if you've heard of the golden rule. Put your hands up. No one's heard of the golden rule. That's scary. Uh, treat others as you would want to be treated, right? Or love others or love your neighbor as you would yourself. 
And I'm Korean. Jeremiah's Filipino last week. Uh, go Korean music, pop music, Gangnam uh, style. It's the only reference that you guys will get. Um, and so when I moved here from Korea on a boat, I'm kidding, we have planes these days. Uh, we came over here, fresh off the plane, FOP, and... Um, that's racist. Um, I'm kidding. I don't know. Why is that racist? Um, we came off the plane. I, I was five years old when I moved here. And I remember, right, because I can't, I can barely, at five years old, you can barely speak your first language. Never mind, try to, like, integrate a second one. So I can barely speak Korean. And I remember, my, like, one of my first weeks in kindergarten. Um, and kindergarten in, 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 in Canada is awesome because you get, like, re, like, snack time, recess, and lunch. You're like, man, add nap time. And you're like, this is good. Um, Kanye, welcome to the good life. Um, and so you're there. You guys shouldn't be listening to that music. Um, and so it's recess or snack time. And um, I didn't know this, uh, but the way that you were supposed to eat, okay, I don't know the process and the rules for proper recess. You know, get off my back. And so there, what, what was supposed to happen is that there was a room, our classroom, you set up chairs like this in a circle, and you ate this snack quietly and silently. Boring. Um, and so I thought to myself, right, like, man, I just want my peers and these students to love me. I just want them to love me. And so I thought, man, what can I do? I was like, man, humor is universal. If I can get them to laugh at me, not even with me, you know, that's, that's leaping too far. If can get, I can get them to laugh at me, then maybe I'll be liked. And so I decided one day during snack time, it's about to go down. And um, my mom packed me. Do you guys remember those silly cheese strings? You like peel it and you eat it. It looks like a mop. Nod your head if you remember silly cheese strings. Um, I'm lactose intolerant, so in hindsight, I don't know what my mom was trying to do to me. I call them lactutes when you have to fart because you're lactose intolerant. Lactutes, copyrighted, give me the credit. So, like, what? Well, I probably had lactutes later that day. But my mom packed me this silly cheese string. So I thought to myself, man, I'm going to get my friends to laugh. So I peel the silly cheese string in a way that kind of looks like a mop. So one is still whole, another is still peeled. And I, and I stick the cheese in my mouth and I run around the inside of the circle with half of it in my mouth and the other half dangling out. And I shake it in people's faces. And people are laughing. I'm like, yeah, the people love me. And I'm like, yeah, Peter, Peter, Peter. And the teacher walks in, right? I really wanted you guys to secretly join me there, but it's fine. Peter, Peter. Um, <laughs> I give you a second chance. You still didn't do it. The teacher walks in. The teacher walks in. I'm like, Woo! I'm about to get a gold star. You know what I mean? I'm going to get student recognition, peer recognition, and now teacher recognition. So, just Peter, I go, hmm. Yes. Hallway. I'm like, whoa, special treatment. I walk up to the hallway. I'm five, okay? I'm chubby. I'm Korean. I'm still Korean. I'm working on the chubby. The English is hard. So, I walk up. She said, Peter. Have you heard of the golden rule? I'm like, no, but I want the golden star. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so she said, have you heard of the golden rule? I said, no, I haven't. What's the golden rule? She said, treat others as you would want yourself to be treated or love your neighbor as you would want them to love you. Love your neighbor as yourself. I said, okay, I'm not seeing where you're going with this. Um, and she said, would you want cheese shaken in your face? I said, yes, ma'am, I would. She said, no, and I got in trouble. But there's this idea of the golden rule we actually first find in a narrative in scripture found in the Bible. And what's happening is there's a group of church leaders and they're actually kind of trying to trick Jesus. They say, Jesus, what would you say is the most important commandment? So if there was one kind of law overarching everything, what would you say? And Jesus answers them and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. But he says, the second is just like the first. He said, love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love your neighbor as yourself. In pop culture, we've uh, labeled it the golden rule, but it's okay because Jesus said it's important, so we should think it's important. So love your neighbor as yourself. But what Jesus is really presenting to you and I through this idea of the golden rule is that the limit in which I can love the people around me is by the limit I can love myself. So the extent in which I can love my neighbor is capped by how much I'm actually able to love myself. If I'm supposed to love my neighbor as I'm supposed to love myself, then I can only love that neighbor as much as I love myself. It's a really logical, practical conclusion that Jesus is teaching to us. And what I want to look at tonight for a brief 10, 15 minutes, I'm lying when I say that, but I want you to know that I'm trying my best. 10, 15 minutes, I want to look at this idea of what it actually looks like to love yourself. Hashtag Biebs. Hashtag Jordan Waller. Hashtag claim to fame. Hashtag we all want him to be famous so that we can say we know him. Hashtag he led us in worship. It's fine. But as we actually look in the mirror, and if we're all being honest tonight, in a world where we all, each of us, carry so much insecurity that leads to this incredible loneliness and loneliness. I want to look at the Bible and look at ourselves hard in the mirror and see what God really says about us and what it actually looks like to love ourselves. Guys, we actually live in a time and age, all of us. We have our phones, we have our Instagram, we have our Facebook, we have our Twitter. For the first time in human history, you and I can actually metrically quantify if you're better than me or not. It's called likes on Instagram. Likes are now you can do all those different options on Facebook. Why you got to go make it complicated? Why you got to make things? Anyways, um, Twitter, retweets. There's now subtweets. There's Instagram stories, Snapchat, Snapchat streaks, all this. But you and I can actually quantify. You and I can quantify who's more popular and who has more worth by our social media accounts. And we think it's ridiculous, but we're all lying if we say it doesn't affect us. For the first time in ministry, I no longer just compare my ministry to my friends down the road, but now I can compare myself to the mega church youth pastor in Miami. And I think, man, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. Now my worth is found in how many followers I have and the ratio of how many people I'm following, how many people like my Instagram picture, do I post it at the right time? And all of a sudden, you and I have somehow quantifically, metrically made a way measuring who is more valuable than the person beside us. And we're lying if we say it doesn't affect us. There's no one in here. It's human condition to compare, to wrestle with insecurities. But in a culture today, it's actually heightened in a world that you and I can actually say, I'm better than the person beside me. And comparison is such a lonely road to go down because yes, when you find someone that you metrically are better than, it makes you feel good, but you'll never be at the top, so you'll never feel what you're supposed to feel. And it's not that we don't know who we are. And the Bible's clear in saying who we are, but it's so easy in today's world and culture to be bogged down by this incredible insecurity that's fed over and over again by mainstream culture and social media platforms. So I want to look at the Bible tonight. I probably said, look at this, um, to really see what God looks or what God sees when he looks at us. That when we look hard in the mirror tonight, that you and I would no longer see the labels that people have put on us or nowadays the labels we've put on ourselves. But for the first time, maybe for some of you guys, or the first time in a long time or the first time since two days ago, that you and I would look to the word of God, look in the mirror, so to speak, and see not what other people see or what our Instagram bio or profile says about us, but what God says about loving ourselves. So if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 5. I got a haircut, so I don't look like that anymore. Um, but whoever do that, amazing. Uh, 
Brett Ellis looks like a caveman, though. Um, Mark chapter 5. Don't tell him I said that. Don't listen to the podcast, Brett. <laughs> don't listen. Mark chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, you can flip with me there. If you don't, I think we have it up uh, because the guys in the back are so good. If they don't have it up, don't look back there. It's not their fault. It's mine, okay? Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. I'm going to try my best reading voice. I'm ESL, so please have grace. Not funny. It's a challenge. If God can use Moses, God can use an Asian. Um, no, stop. Verse 21, it says, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat. Somebody say, I'm on a boat. All right, half of you are drowning. Okay, um, to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers, one of the church leaders at the times, one of the pastors named Jairus, cool name, came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, saying, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her that you may, she may be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. Jesus is a nice guy. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, around Jesus. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all that she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So when she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. Because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And immediately, the Bible says, her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples, his followers, his homies, answered. And yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus, he ignored them, kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. And then Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Let's pray before we go into it. God, thank you so much for your incredible word. Thank you that you choose to speak to us. God, I pray for each of my friends here. God, thank you that you're a God that we can't just only know about but we can actually experience in our hearts. And God, in your word in Romans, it says that you desire to pour out your love into our hearts by your spirit. And I pray that your love, God, wouldn't be something that we just sing about, talk about, or know about, but it'd be something we experience in our hearts in a personal, powerful, and purposeful way tonight. Thank you for this family. Thank you for friends. Pray all this in Jesus' mighty name. And everybody said, amen. Hey, who here likes movies? Hands up. TV shows. We live in the like, day and age of uh, Netflix these days, right? Um, but I think more than anything, I think humans, people, you and I, uh, we're suckers for good stories. You know what I mean? Like, who loves a good story? I love good stories. I love getting bought into, like, the uh, character development. It's a round character, dynamic, static, flat. You learn that from English. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Nothing changes. Hint. Um, and... Uh, you are able to kind of be caught up in like the whole story plot, right? There's plot twists, there's rising action, there's climax, resolution, conclusion, all this stuff. But authors, producers, directors, whatever, poets, anything kind of a way of storytelling have a special ability. And that special ability is that they have the ability to tell the audience, you and I, whether we're watching it, reading it, or listening to it, something that the characters in the story yet do not know. 
So authors, directors, producers, whatever, screenwriters, all these people have a special ability. And that's the ability to tell you and I, the audience, something that the characters in the story itself yet do not know. We see this all the time. It's like every scary movie, right? Like the orchestral strings come on, you're like something bad's about to happen. There's a serial killer in this dark room and a girl in the closet. Nah, 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 and you know what's going to happen? You're screaming at the TV. You're like, no, don't go in there. You're screaming at the TV. And you're like, no. I have special abilities. Taken. Or in every romantic movie, boys, um, this, it starts off every scene. It's the same thing. 15 minutes, but we love it. Uh, boy and a girl. Good, boy and girl. And they talk, for some reason, it's like Romeo and Juliet. I don't know. Their parents don't want them together. Their friends don't want them together. I don't know. They have to break up. I don't know. I don't get it. Dating is weird. So there's a guy and a girl. Ask Pastor Michael about it. Uh, <laughs> No, not about that, guys. I'm just saying dating is like, it's fine. Um, so there's a guy and a girl. And they break up. So they're walking in two different directions. Because you know when it's super awkward is when you say bye to someone and you walk in the same direction as them? And you're like, what are we doing, dude? And you have to say bye again. But sometimes you don't. And then you're like, ooh, did I leave on a weird note? And then you get a text later. Are we okay? No. Um, a guy and a girl. Some, some of you guys in dating relationships, that happens. Are we okay should not be the most common text that you guys get. The guy and a the girl, they're walking away. The guy's walking away thinking to himself, no, did I not learn anything from the words and wisdom of Beyonce? If you like it, then put a ring on it. If you like it, then put a ring on it. So, in desperation and hope, he turns his head like that. Because <laughs> guys try to be smooth and it's the opposite. Um, and unfortunately, to his dismay and despair, the girl is not looking back. So he turns back in disappointment. The guys were crying at this point. She's walking away. And then, like literally five seconds later, the girl, she's thinking to herself, what are you doing? You want to have 50 kids with him? You're so you're looking. He already has a minivan. He's 10 steps ahead. He's working on his dad bod already. It's amazing. It's going on. Ah! So she turns her head in hope. But to her despair and dismay, now the guy isn't looking back. And we're screaming at the TV saying, no! You're meant to be together, but it's 15 minutes in, and we know that they're probably going to get back together because most movies are predictable, right? Uh, like, put your hand up if you've watched Finding Nemo or Finding Dory. Could you imagine if they didn't find Nemo? Like, we would be choked. I'm not going to, I'm never watching Ellen again. I feel deceived. You know, none of us, like, I don't care if you're like, yeah, I love it when the bad guy wins. No! When you watch a superhero movie or any kind of movie where there's, like, an underdog team or anything, no, 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 no. You're weird and twisted and evil and need Jesus if you want the bad guys to win, okay? Most movies are predictable, but we like it. We just don't like to admit it. Finding Nemo, if they didn't find Nemo, Finding Dory would be the worst release in all of cinematic history. But directors, authors, producers, screenwriters have an ability to tell the audience something uh, that the characters in the story yet do not know. And uh, this is, I think, almost the best illustrated in a kid's uh, novel slash book slash illustration uh, by a guy named Hans Christian Anderson. And the book is called The Ugly Duckling. Nod your head if you've heard of the book, The Ugly Dunkling. Let, not The Ugly Dumpling, The Ugly Duckling. I know it's confusing when I say it, Ugly Duckling. Like the, I was going to make chicken noises. I don't know what, the quack. There it is. Dumplings, not, no. Ugly duckling. CK. Stop. And so, there's this children's novel. And what we see in the story is that the ugly duckling is born into a family of ducklings. But for all of his life, uh, he's treated as the odd one out, the black sheep in the family. He doesn't quite look the same. He doesn't quite act the same. So he doesn't quite live the same way. But all of his life, he's bullied. 
he's pressured and he's labeled as the odd one out, the person to stay away from, the person that doesn't fit in. And in bad situations, the person that's the mistake in the family. And he grows up not only hearing it from those close to him, but he hears about it from all the other farm animals. And he even says that the farmer said he was the ugly duckling, the odd sheep out. And he even said that the pig, when pigs tell you that you're the odd one out, it's a bad day for you. And so, growing up, the ugly duckling is marginalized. He's pushed to the outside. He's so fed up with so much incredible loneliness and insecurity from being told all of his life that he was a mistake, that he was the odd one out, that he just won't quite fit in. That he just says, I've had it all. So he kind of puts himself in isolation. I don't want to grow up with friends. I don't have family. I don't know. And he grows up and the seasons go by and, you know, he, he grows older. And one day, he sees this flock of beautiful swan that's flying above. And he gets so bold to say, man, if I was just as good looking or as beautiful or as magnificent as these swans, then maybe I would have grown up being loved and liked and appreciated so much. But rather, I grew up knowing that I was the ugly duckling, hearing that all of my life. And so he gets bolder and he swims a little bit closer and all of a sudden, to his dismay, the flock of swans begin to circle down on him. And he crouches his head in nervousness and incredible fear that these guys are going to bully him. The most beautiful creatures he had ever seen. The people that he's trying to, or the birds he's trying to aspire to be like. And he crouches his head and as he looks down into the water. He's surprised at another beautiful swan looking back at him. And at this point, as the audience, we understand that this ugly duckling had been a beautiful swan all along. And nothing had changed in the story. There was no miraculous life transforming, life-altering, body change, or face swap. There was none of it. He was a swan all along. But the, for the first time in his life, he looked hard in the mirror and saw himself to be who he was actually created to be. And when I read a story about this woman with the issue of blood in the text in Mark chapter 5, I think, man, this woman understood what it to be like the ugly duckling. If I think about anybody, when I think about insecurity in my life, and guys, I'm being honest, the insecurity and loneliness isn't exclusive to those that just are bullied or like look like on the outside that they don't have it together. Some of you guys might be considered the most popular kids in your school, the funniest people, the most charming, the most athletic, and it's you. You go home and you know that that's just not enough and you can't love yourself because you're so insecure. You're constantly living in a world of compassion and it'll never be enough. And so when I think about and wrestle with insecurity in my own life, there's no one that I can relate to more than this woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5. She was the ugly duckling. And when we read a story like this, guys, it's really easy to miss some of the important details that we see. You see at this time, we know that from the Bible, from the text in Mark chapter 5, that she was suffered with this issue of blood for 12 years. Now let me tell you, it wasn't like there was like this bleeding that she had in her body and modern medicine, all this stuff, she was on treatment. No, no, no. At the time she was living at, at the time that this story, this narrative occurs, this woman, according to the religious law, the Levitical law at the time, she would have been literally labeled as unclean. Whenever there was a woman that had an irregular flow of blood, they were labeled as unclean for that period or extent of time. And we know that she wasn't born with it. But for 12 years, she suffered with this disease. She was literally called the unclean woman, the person to stay away from. If you were born or alive for longer than a year, you would know. You just don't go near this girl. Because also, according to the religious law, whatever she touched also became unclean. So if I was unclean and I touched this chair, now this chair 
chair is also unclean. If I touch somebody else, now that person is also ceremonially unclean. So people wanted to stay away from her. She was unclean. She was unloved. She was marginalized. She was broken. She was distressed. She was lonely. And all of it, she was incredibly insecure. And you and I don't have to imagine why she would be. You and I, if we lived 12 years, it's not even like she was born with it. You know what I mean? So that means she knew at one point in her life what it felt like to have intimate friends and to have family that loved her and to have furniture. Why have furniture when everything you touch is unclean? For 12 years, she has no intimate relationships and she has no family around her and she's unclean and she's incredibly lonely and she's so insecure. In the Bible, it's clear in saying that she tried all that she can. It's not like she just sat there in laziness and saying, man, woe is me. Pity me. I'm not going to do anything about it. The Bible is clear. She did all that she could. She paid and she spent all of her money, all of her time, all of her energy, all of her efforts, meeting different doctors, specialists. But the Bible also is clear in saying that instead of getting better, she just kept getting worse until she hits rock bottom. And then the story turns around. Because she hears that this Jesus guy is in town. And Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Savior of the world. And wherever Jesus is going, he seems to be healing the sick. The lame are walking, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing. And so she thinks to herself, man, this is the last straw. I've done all that I can. And at the time, if she went out in public, she would have been ridiculed. And if she touched anyone, she could have been punished by stoning. But she risks it all. You see, man, this is my last straw. Nothing that the world is providing, whether it's medicine or whether it's support, is not helping me get any better. So she hears Jesus is in town. And so she walks outside. And you can only imagine how the story unfolds. Because she's saying, excuse me, excuse me. And the Bible's clear that people pressed around Jesus. There's a large crowd everywhere that Jesus, excuse me, excuse me. But as soon as the village finds out who this girl is, they're like, what are you doing? They're yelling at her. Don't touch me. And it begins to split. And she thinks to herself, I just need to touch the hem of his garment. And it was faith, but it was also superstition, right? Because she believed that whatever she touched became unclean. So she thought to herself, if Jesus really is who he says that he is, and he's the son of God, then I only need to touch his clothes to be healed. So she reaches out, and the Bible's clear in saying this. is immediately... She was freed from her suffering. But just as healing power entered into her body... Jesus felt power leave his. And so he asked the question, who touched my clothes? Now at this time, his, his followers, his disciples, they have the audacity to ask, Jesus, what do you mean who touched you? The Bible, the text says there were people crowding, crushing around him in different translations. How can you ask who's touching you? Everyone's touching you. You know what I mean? Peter's probably trying to be smart. He's like, I touched you, Jesus. Trying to get credit. But he's like, no, no, no. Everyone's touching you. But there's a sense of urgency that his disciples have. Because earlier in the text, what it shows us is that they were on mission to go heal Jairus' daughter. Jairus was a church leader, a pastor, someone of significance, someone that was valued in the community. So disciples said, who cares? who touched you first of all everyone's touching you second of all we're on mission Jesus she's gonna die can we go the the disciples they missed it they missed it but Jesus just effectively ignores them and says no 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 no. who touched me and kept looking around when the text says the text says that the, the, the woman knowing what had happened to her fell at his feet trembling with fear told him the whole truth see Jesus in this story in this narrative wanted the girl to know it wasn't what she touched but who she had come in contact with that healed her 
And if physical healing was all that she needed and Jesus was just good with that, if Jesus came to just modify our behavior and make us good people, you know that Jesus, through the Easter story, through the Christmas narrative, through what we know in the gospel, Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. There's a greater rescue mission happening. So if physical healing was all that Jesus needed or wanted to see in this woman's life, he could have kept going. But he knew there was a deeper hurt. There's this deeper hurt in this woman's body. And so he looks around. And this woman, for 12 years, the only name she had been called was unclean, unlovable, a mistake, an accident, the odd sheep, the person to stay away from. You can only imagine the incredible loneliness, insecurity, and isolation that she would have felt. So when Jesus, her God, her Savior, demands who touched her, why is she trembling with fear? Because for 12 years, she had heard that she was just not worth it. So why wouldn't Jesus, a man of incredible stature, God himself, why would Jesus see her as anything else? But this is what the text says, and I love this. It says in the text, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And in a moment, this woman's insecurities, there's a beautiful exchange for her true identity. For 12 years, and the band can come up as they get ready to close. For 12 years, for 12 years, she just hears the words, unclean, not worth it, not good enough, not pretty, useless. For 12 years. And in one encounter with her Savior, God himself, Jesus looks at her. And I can only imagine the tears in his eyes wouldn't have been tears of frustration, but tears of incredible love. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. You know that this is the only story in all of the Gospels that are accounted where Jesus looks at a girl and calls her daughter? Imagine the transfer the exchange that happens when this girl for 12 years, all that she heard was she was just not good enough. And then Jesus, one encounter with her Savior, and he, she hears the words that she would never expect anyone to say, never mind someone like Jesus. She hears the most intimate words, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And we know that when we study the original Greek, when Jesus says go in peace, he's not just saying peace from like an inward anxiety. He's saying go in peace knowing that you're in right standing with God because of what I've done for you. So for 12 years, this woman is unclean. She has this disease. She's incredibly alone. She's in ritual isolation. She's incredibly insecure. And in one encounter with Jesus, she's called daughter. And she experiences peace in her mind and in her body for the first time in years. And I just thought, there's so much hope in this story, right? Because how many times do I wrestle with this? That I'm just not good enough. And I know what the Bible says about me. But I can be so bogged down. And I'm led into so much incredible insecurity. And I put this weight on myself that I can't carry alone. And there's this beautiful exchange that I believe that God is asking you and I to be a part of tonight. Whether you don't know Jesus at all or whether you've followed him for years or for a week, there's an exchange that needs to happen almost daily for us, for our insecurities, for our true identity. Some of you guys in this room, when I talk about the ugly duckling, that resonates with you stronger than any other story I could tell. You're like, yeah, that's me. For X amount of years, or since I was born, or since my parents got divorced, or since this happened, or since I moved schools, or since I didn't make this team, I felt like the odd one out. I was never good enough. And somewhere along the line, you thought you were strong enough to go, but now you've bought into the lies that other people have put on you. Some of you guys, your greatest enemy is your own mind. You've convinced yourself somehow that you're not good enough. 
or you're like this woman with the issue of blood. You walk around feeling, I'm so alone. There's this epidemic that's spreading across the world. It's called loneliness, and it's the worst kind of loneliness. You can be in a room full of people like this, but still feel so alone. Still feel so alone. The general surgeon in the United States is a man or a woman appointed by the president of the United States to kind of be the public health spokesperson for all of the country. He's recorded multiple times saying that cancer, diabetes, and obesity isn't the most prevalent health issue in the United States. He says loneliness is. Crazy. He says loneliness is the issue. Some of you guys feel so alone. Some of you guys don't understand. When you look in the mirror, you don't even see a normal person. And you struggle so much with your identity, with your, who you are, your value, and your worth. You want to know what my God, your God, your Father says about you? This is what it says in the Bible. It says, 1 Peter chapter 2 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. 2 Corinthians says that the Lord Almighty calls us sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. Ephesians 2 says that we're God's workmanship, his masterpiece. So you guys wake up and you look at the mountains and you think about how beautiful it is. And God doesn't think squat about that because when he looks at you, he says, no, you're the pinnacle. You're perfection. You're what I created. Everything else was supposed to point to me, but you are the bearer of my image. You're not a mistake. I want you to know, some of you guys need to hear this. God doesn't make mistakes, not one, and God made you. That's enough to free you. This is what it says in Galatians 3, that we all belong to Christ. The message of the gospel is that when we believe in Jesus, what he done on the cross, what we celebrate on Easter, what we ought to celebrate every week, that we're a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And some of you guys aren't physically bleeding, but you're spiritually bleeding and you're being depleted and you're feeling on empty and you just don't have enough life in you to continue and you don't feel what your worth is and you've been so bogged down. You've begun to begin to lie, believe the lies of the enemy, the lies of culture, the lies of the world, your own lies. You know what the stupidest thing that the world has ever coined? It said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's a lie. My bones will heal, but I, some, some of us won't forget the words that when we're seven year old, when we're seven years old, a friend or a classmate or a parent said to us. Some of you guys are still living in that lie and wait. Someone told you you weren't good enough when you were 10 years old and you still can't shake it off. Someone told you last week for the fifth time or the, for the first time or for the third time that you were not pretty, not smart, not funny enough, and you've begun to believe in that lie. So every time you look in the mirror, you don't see who you were created to be the whole time, a swan, but you see yourself as an ugly duckling. Nothing has changed, but when we believe in Jesus, the old is gone and the new has come. You know what I love about the new like antique uh, shows, you know, like pawn shop and all this kind of stuff, is that what you see in these TV shows is that you see like an ugly doll, like a raggedy doll, and you're like, man, no one could pay me. Dolls are freaky, right? I don't know, I apologize if you love dolls, but dolls are freaky. And you're like, man, no one could pay me even $5 to take that doll. And then you see somebody walk in and pay like half a million dollars for the doll, you're like, what? You know what this teaches us? That we don't actually know the worth or value of something until we see what someone is willing to pay for it. So you wanna know your worth, you want to know your value? Look at the cross and the price that Jesus paid for you. You don't really know how much something or someone is worth until you see what someone is willing to pay for it. Jesus paid it all for you because that's his worth in you. You're a son. 
You're a daughter of the Most High King. You know what I say to myself every time before I go up to preach? I say, I'm my father's son. I'm a servant to the word and I'm a slave to the gospel and I'm free in Christ. So insecurities, lies, they can go away because I know who I am in Jesus. Some of you guys tonight, God's asking you to be a part of this beautiful exchange of our insecurities for the true identity. Can you guys join? Uh, get up on your feet and join me in standing? I'm just going to get ready to close here. Some of you guys tonight, as I talk about the ugly duckling, as I talk about this woman with the issue of blood, you resonate with it so much. And some of you guys, there's this incredible weight of insecurity that you'll not be good enough. And some of you guys, it's the insecurity that's led to this incredible aloneness and loneliness. Uh, Mother Teresa is quoted saying this. She says, the greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. She said, it's being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There, I love this. There are many dying in the world for a little piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little bit of love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It's not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There's a hunger for love as there's a hunger for God. Mother Teresa, a woman who had dedicated, devoted her entire life in taking care of the orphan, in taking care of the widow, in taking care of the disenfranchised, the marginalized, the people who were in poverty. She has the audacity to say, you think they're poor? They're dying for bread, but you are dying for love. And that's the worst kind of poverty. That the greatest disease spreading around mankind is this incredible loneliness that you feel. And it's the worst kind of loneliness where you can be in a full room full of people but still feel so alone. And religion is good. And going to church is good. But if church might occupy a Tuesday night or a Sunday morning, but it will never occupy your heart. The love of your heavenly Father, though, goes wherever you go. You know what my, great, my favorite verse to think about around this time because of Easter? The Bible says that the same power that raised Christ from the dead lives in me. That means no matter the circumstance, no matter the situation, some of you guys are gonna walk out of here tonight, experience God's love, but you're gonna go home to the same crappy situation, to the same broken relationships. You're gonna go to school tomorrow morning and be bullied again. What's the difference? God lives in your heart and that makes all the difference. It does, it changes your life. I'm gonna invite, if you're a youth leader in this place, can you guys just come up to the front? I'm gonna open, this is what we call the altar. It sounds scary, but I promise it's not. It's a good thing. Youth leaders, we're just going to ask that you spread around in the front here. And we're just going to enter into a time of worship. Into a time of prayer ministry. We believe that prayer is powerful. Not because of the words that we say, but because of the person that we're praying to. You know what I love about the story in Mark chapter 5? Is that this woman, although it wasn't her faith that, it was, sorry, it wasn't her works that healed her. It was her faith that did. She had to step out. She had to reach out. She had to touch her clothes. She was risking harassment, risking death. Tonight, I'm asking you to risk your reputation. I'm asking you to risk your self-image so that you know your self-worth. So we're gonna, the, the band, they sound so good. They're gonna lead us in a time of worship. But if you're here 
And maybe the step for you is that you've never invited Jesus into your heart. I want you to know that the Bible says God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. That means true love takes action. God loved you so much that he came to the earth he created to die a death that those he created deserved but could not pay. And then he raised three days later, defeating sickness, defeating death, paying the penalty of sin. And sin is this idea that we've created a gap between us and God that you and I can't fill. But Jesus did it for us. The cross represents a bridging between us and God that you and I couldn't pay, but Jesus already did. And religion will say, do, 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 until you belong. Jesus said, it's already been done. So you belong. You're a son, you're a daughter. And your step tonight is to, is to come out, go to one of these incredible leaders that love you so much and say, hey, I just want to pray to receive Jesus tonight. Maybe for the first time or the first time in a long time. I love that about the grace of God, that as long as it's called today, you can make that decision again. And he, and he accepts you and loves you. Some of you guys tonight, you have to come up for prayer because you need there to be a beautiful exchange of your insecurities for God's identity for you. And I'm gonna leave it up to you, how much, whatever you wanna share with your leaders here. And maybe you just, you have no words to articulate. They just wanna pray for you anyways. We believe in the power of prayer. We believe in standing with one another. Some of you guys, as they talked about loneliness, it's plaguing you. And the idea of being alone with your thoughts, the idea of all this, some of you guys are wrestling with depression, suicide, mental illness, and you just don't have the strength to get up and do another day. I promise you, God, His Holy Spirit is described as our great comforter, and a comforter that's not comforting us from a distance, but someone who comes right alongside and says, hey, you can do this. I love you. I love you. I love you. You're a son. You're a daughter. Don't let anybody tell you what you aren't or what you, or you can't do, because I'm going to tell you right now that I have a plan and purpose for your life, and that purpose and plan is not to harm you but to prosper you that you were created on purpose for a purpose personally and powerfully and you're not a mistake because I am a perfect God so the, the band and the team is going to lead us and if that's you tonight I want you to be so bold as to step out and just ask and receive prayer tonight and if that's not you tonight just join us as we continue to pray and worship God